spleen. Such an interesting organ. It's kind of a graveyard, mopping up old or damaged red blood cells. On second thoughts, we actually should have released this episode in October. You know, graveyards, Halloween, that kind of thing. But this is a microbiology and infectious diseases podcast, so I'm sure you've guessed that our discussion today will have something related to infections. So yes, the spleen has a pretty important function related to infection too. This is Microbe Mail, and I'm your host, Vindana Chibabai. Today, we're speaking spleen. And my guest for this episode is Professor Veronica Eckerman. Veronica, please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. It's such a privilege to speak on this podcast, which I've listened to quite a few times. So uh, I'm Veronica Eckerman. I work in infectious diseases at Steve Eco Academic Hospital in the University of Pretoria. Um, my baseline was always critical care, and I've since migrated to infectious diseases um, after some research, and my PhD was in that field. So it's great to be with you guys today. Mm, and it's nice to have both your expertise as an infectious diseases specialist and from the ICU. So fantastic to have you on. And thanks for listening as well. So a couple of reminders to the listeners before we head into our episode. Remember to follow updates by signing up on the website to receive email updates from us. Follow us on social media. We're on X, not Twitter anymore, Instagram, as well as Facebook. And you can also find most of the Microbe Mail team on LinkedIn. Please share this content with your colleagues, students, friends, anyone interested in infectious diseases. And we're really trying to reach further into Africa and other lower middle income countries. So please go ahead and share with anyone in those countries that you know as well. And one last request, please, if you haven't yet, make sure you give us that five-star rating. Okay, Veronica, are you ready to tackle the spleen? I'm ready. Fantastic. So I think the first question we need to ask, and because we're talking about asplenia and what asplenia is with regards to infectious diseases, can you explain what asplenia is and why it is important in the context of the immune system, microbiology, and infectious diseases? Asplenia refers to a complete loss of function of the spleen, um, and this could either be anatomical or functional. Of course, there's also hyposplenism, which is a little bit before a complete um, asplenia, which is just a decrease in function. Mm -hmm. But if you think about uh, the anatomical, so a patient who's had a splenectomy and had the spleen removed, or it could be functional uh, due, to, due to various diseases where you actually just have loss of the spleen function. I think in terms of the immune system, microbiology and infectious diseases, uh, the spleen plays such a central role in clearing pathogens and through various mechanisms and uh, controlling infections, especially when it comes to encapsulated bacteria. So think of the red pulp of the spleen, the sinusoids actually serve as mechanical filters that remove frigid particles and that's usually those particles more than one micron in size from the circulation. And these are, also, of course, also your senescent cells, um, but also red blood cells, for instance, that might contain parasites or uh, bacteria. Your macrophages are positioned along the sinusoids, and these are important in um, eliminating infected cells and bacteria via phagocytosis. And the macrophages also produce pro-inflammatory cytokines, which is important in our infection response. And then lastly, in the white pulp of the spleen, um, you house your body's immunoglobulin-producing B cells, your B lymphocytes, and they are critical in producing antibodies. 
And those antibodies that target the polysaccharide antigens on the surface of encapsulated bacteria. That's also why these are the, the kind of organisms we see in patients who don't have a spleen anymore. Great. That was a really good overview. So what then would you say are the primary causes of asplenia? And I suppose for a clinician or a student listening, we'd kind of also want to know how common is asplenia? So if you think of anatomical asplenia, usually that is in, in the context of for a clinician, that's post-splenectomy. So when a patient, for instance, had trauma or splenic lymphoma, or for some reason needed the, the spleen removed, um, then that's your anatomical asplenia. And sometimes we do a splenectomy for things like hemolytic anemia or mean thrombocytopenias as a therapeutic intervention as well. Mm. When you look at, at uh, functional asplenia, you're really looking at medical conditions that could cause that. I think the example we all learned in medical was sickle cell anemia, mm -hmm. but there are a large number of diseases, other autoimmune diseases, celiac diseases, inflammatory bowel disease, um, beta thalassemia, there's uh, nephrotic syndrome has been associated with functional asplenia and advanced HIV infection. There are some cases described as well. Rarely the spleen is actually congenitally absent, but um, that, is, that is really rare. If you look at the prevalence and incidence of functional asplenism, I think that is dependent on the prevalence of the precipitating diseases. So trauma is, is kind of similar um, around regions, but if you work in an area where sickle cell disease is more common or thalassemia is more common, you are more likely to see patients who've had splenectomies or have functional asplenia. So if you're looking at how common it is, I think it really depends on where you're working. Um, as to how commonly you will see this. It's not uh, these patients we don't see very commonly in practice, but generally we do get involved and consulted, especially in infectious diseases, around when patients have planned splenectomies and uh, they need certain prophylaxis and vaccinations in that time. Okay, great. And are there any specific microorganisms then that we need to think about when we're consulting patients with asplenia or specific organisms that they're vulnerable to and why? The risk for severe and overwhelming infections is typically described with new encapsulated bacteria. Mm -hmm. So like strep pneumonia, Haemophilus influenza, Neisseria meningitis. But you also have to think of blood-borne parasites. And the one we sometimes forget is, is malaria mm -hmm. and other infections that the spleen could play a role in controlling. But as a group, patients with asplenia or hypersplenism tend to have more severe infections and they tend to have worse, worse outcomes than their counterparts with the spleen, even in, in other infections that are not necessarily just with encapsulated bacteria. Because the white pulp of the spleen houses the lymphocytes that produce, um, that produce immunoglobulins. And these are actually critical in producing the antibodies that target the surface of encapsulated bacteria. And that's why you're particularly vulnerable to these kinds of bacteria if you've had a splenectomy or you have hypersplenism. Right. Okay, great. Good point about malaria. I think we, as you say, we often think about those encapsulated bacteria, but we don't always think about other pathogens. So then what about the patients themselves? Are there any gender or age-related differences we need to think about when it comes to that sort of vulnerability? In patients at the extremes of ages, um, they tend to have higher rates of infection and often more severe infection. 
in patients with asplenia or hyposplenism related to hemoglobinopathies or hematological malignancies and immunodeficiencies or inflammatory diseases tend to have higher rates of infection than those who've undergone a splenectomy for trauma. So I think those extremes of ages and the cause of the hyposplenism are important in terms of uh, vulnerability to infections. However, many of these associations really haven't been consistently observed across studies. These are just uh, trends that are being picked up. But I think children under five are particularly vulnerable, especially if they didn't have their vaccinations before they um, lost their spleens or had congenital hyperasplenism. Um, that would be very important. Right, of course. And what are common symptoms of infections in people with asplenia? And how might they differ from those with an intact spleen? Fever is really a common first symptom of infection. I think what is quite different about patients who don't have an intact spleen is the rate at which things can deteriorate. Hmm. So fever is often a common first presentation, but very rapidly after that, they can actually um, develop signs of sepsis or more severe infection. So if you think of the organisms we spoke about previously, we're thinking of uh, diseases such as pneumonia, bacteremia, meningitis. So the presenting symptom might be because of the organ that is infected. So the typical signs of pneumonia or the typical signs of meningitis. And uh, patients might also pre present with nonspecific uh, symptoms in early illness. You know, they can just have some chills, malaise, headache, but the problem is that these can really progress quite rapidly to fulminant sepsis mm. and within hours we usually you know we'd see a longer progression in patients who have an intact spleen mm. right so then because of that rapid deterioration would you say that there's a role for antibody prophylaxis in patients with asplenia I think antibiotic prophylaxis in any setting is such a controversial topic um, because <laughs> we're always weighing up the risk of infection versus the risk of uh, antimicrobial resistance. Yep. So really, I think if you look at the literature, the, the message is it should be individualized. I'm going to talk now about some categories where there might be a compelling indication for prophylaxis, mm -hmm. but really the patient in front of you, you want to consider their age, their immune status, their history of infections, especially with these encapsulated organisms versus the potential risks of side effects and antimicrobial resistance if you do use antimicrobial prophylaxis. So if you think of those who are really at high risk for severe infection, um, th those are the young, those who have an additional immunocompromising condition, a history of sepsis in the past um, is quite important. Penicillin and amoxicillin are then generally preferred as the prophylactic agent. So if that is if you have an allergy or intolerance to that, things get more complicated when you have to start moving to other drug classes as well. But if I, if you have a look at the literature, I think in children to the age of five, um, there is certainly some evidence that they might need prophylaxis and it's at least post-splenectomy for the first year. Mm -hmm. And then for children and adults who have concurrent immunosuppressing conditions, such as let's say hematological malignancy or advanced HIV infection, you might consider prophylaxis as long as the patient is immune compromised. Mm -hmm. For children and adults who've had a history of sepsis or severe infections with encapsulated organisms in the past, these are probably patients you might want to target for prophylactic antibiotics. And then 
in the period post-splenectomy, even in adults, um, daily prophylactic antibiotics, the recommendations are around a year post-splenectomy that you are very careful. And then, of course, there are certain situations where if your exposure is higher, you might consider prophylaxis if you're going for a certain procedure um, or, you know, if you if you need an intervention of sorts, there might be periods where a patient would need prophylaxis, but um, not necessarily continuous in, as in some of the other cases. Right. Really an individualized decision, I think. Yeah. So important to consult with infectious diseases specialists if you have access to them or even microbiologists while you're trying to make that decision. Definitely. I think these are decisions that even as an ID specialist, you know, we, we sit around and generally it's the, the surgeons or the rheumatologists or, and myself and the microbiologists. And we really look at the patients in the context and it's also fluid. You know, we, we frequently change our mind as we progress. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've batted around with vaccinations and children who've received vaccinations, et cetera. So are there any vaccinations that are recommended in individuals with asplenia to protect them from these infections? If you go back to the encapsulated organisms, certainly uh, I think the pneumococcal vaccine, Haemophilus influenza B and the meningococcal vaccine are important. And it's really important to discuss the timing of that, especially if you're going for an elective procedure, mm. uh, elective splenectomy, that is. And then I think we sometimes just focus on those vaccines and we forget that really the other age-appropriate and seasonal vaccinations are really important too. Mm. So things like influenza, recently, of course, COVID, um, the normal vaccination schedule in childhood, all of those are important as well. Mm. But additionally, these three are important. Okay. Are there any um, guidelines, Veronica, for uh, vaccinating uh, asplenic patients, or do you basically have to look for the asplenic section of the various vaccination recommendations? So we've we've got the asplenic section of the vaccination okay. uh, recommendations. Um, I'm not sure that there are local guidelines uh, that are ours, but there is a section definitely in our in our vaccination policy. Okay, good, good to know that. So then can you discuss the importance of patient education and awareness regarding asplenia? Um, because obviously somebody who's lost a spleen needs to understand what the risks are associated from not having this important organ. Absolutely. And I think um, the importance of recognizing that things can go wrong very quickly is important in this patient group. So I think education around vaccination is important because I think before we vaccinate patients, really for them to understand the importance, the reason, the rationale in the current malaria where there's a lot of mistrust in general about vaccination. So I think that's an important part of patient education. I think the signs of infection and an appropriate action plan are really important as well. Mm. There are guidelines that advocate that a patient should have emergency antibiotics so that if they feel that they're unwell and they have fever, they can take the first dose before they get to a healthcare practitioner. I think it depends in the milieu where you um, are practicing. If a patient has very quick access to medical care, that's fine. If a patient has to access medical care, which is more remote, which is more difficult to get to, I think emergency antibiotic supply might be really important. And for them to understand that, you know, fever 
in a patient who doesn't have a spleen is a completely different scenario from somebody who just kind of ignores it and takes Panado and for mm-hmm. a day or two and see you can kind of see what happens mm-hmm. because it could be an indicator of something more serious. Yeah. I think it's also important that patients inform other healthcare workers mm. um, of what they what their underlying condition is, and there's you can even wear a medical alert bracelet. Right. I'm just thinking of an example where patients had a high uh, platelet count, and you know everybody kind of running in circles because they've got to ask about surgical history mm. and to get the splenectomy history. So you know, interpreting bloods in that context and interpreting infection in that context, I think, is really important as well. And also having the information about your vaccination status available to the healthcare workers. When you travel, I think it's important education to know what food and water precautions, you know, things like salmonella that could be very dangerous, malaria prophylaxis, mm. knowing what to do when you're traveling abroad. I think that's important. Um, animal exposures, things like dog bites, tick bites in other countries, mm. just to be aware that those can potentially be dangerous. And then, of course, providing them with sources of information. I think in this day and age of misinformation, it's really important to provide our patients with places where they can go to get the right facts. Um, and, and unfortunately, I know lots of people still turn to Facebook and social media, et cetera, mm. if we don't provide them with platforms where they can get reliable information. And I really think that that's part of the education around being a patient with ASPNM. Yeah, and from what you're explaining, it it really isn't just a once-off sit down to say this is what's important about not having a spleen. It's very much a continuous process, as you say. You know, if you're going to be traveling, this is what we need to think about. Um, as you age, these are the things we need to t- think about. And you're right; we we all have access to the internet, um, and so we should be able to provide good resources for for patients. Um, so more on the patient, Veronica. Are there any lifestyle or or dietary modifications that an individual with asplenia should consider to support their overall health and particularly their immunity to infections? Patients, we always advocate a healthy lifestyle for our patients and just, you know, that balanced diet, exercise, adequate rest. And I think that's become more and more important. You know, it's it's kind of full circle. We we used to think that, you know, rest was important uh, and and balanced lifestyle was important. And then we kind of went through a period where we didn't think it affected disease as much. And we're realizing now more and more that all of these things really do have a direct effect on our immune systems. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're looking at overall health, that becomes even more important when you have an immune compromising condition, mm-hmm. such as not having a skin. So I think that's important in terms of just understanding um, that holistically taking care of yourself is really important and making sure that all the other parts of your immune system that are functioning are supported. And then I think food security is really important as well. If you think of your risk for infection, we sometimes don't think of, of simple things like, you know, the vendors where food's brought from or the sources of food, um, foods, how they are prepared and washed adequately cooked, all of these small things uh, could really be important in terms of preventing infection. So foods to avoid overall, I've got a, a dietitian friend who is post-splenectomy, so I specifically mm-hmm. asked oh. her what she avoids. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she, uh, so, so same stories, she's advocating to her patients 
that, you know, just a balanced, healthy lifestyle, um, no extremes, no fads or so mm-hmm. on, just basically getting a balanced diet and making sure what you take in is safe. Good, good. Sound and important advice. So I don't know if you have much more to add to the next question, Veronica, but the next one is what advice would you offer to asplenic individuals to help them maintain good health and reduce the risk of infections? I think you've covered most of that. Do you have anything else to add? No, I think just, you know, avoiding undue risk is important. Um, Mm -hmm. So all of those things we've been advocating, hand hygiene, staying away from sick people, protecting yourself, um, I mentioned vaccinations up to date, and an early action plan. I think you should, as a patient, empower yourself to be very sure that if this happens, I know who to call, where to go to, and what to do. Mm. So it's really about education and understanding the condition. And, you know, it's much more extensive than just going to a patient and saying, oh, sorry, you know, you no longer have this organ in your body. So then do you think that or do you know of any support networks or organizations that are dedicated to raising awareness about asplenia and the microbiological implications that you could direct our listeners to? And perhaps we've got some non-medical listeners who, who might be interested to know. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, Mm. First of all, well done to you for making this (laughs) a public, you know, a a point, for making the point and driving it home. Mm. Because when I was thinking about networks and organizations, of course, I I started on Google. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I I called up my friend who doesn't have a spleen and asked her if she's joined any. And uh, then I asked chat GPT, to be honest, who didn't know of any support groups (laughs) in South Africa. (laughs) Um, There are some Facebook groups. I did find some groups on Facebook. Generally, they are very much um, Mm patient-driven. And I think this is probably where your audience might be able to educate me Mm. because uh, I, I was struggling to actually find a network of support for patients who have splenectomies where they can get information so if there is such a thing, I think it's very difficult to come by if you just use Google or ChatGPT. Um, but if you look on, you know, if you look on UpToDate, for instance, there are numerous um, support groups and registries, et cetera, um, in the United States. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see such a strong um, network of support in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I'd be delighted if I'm wrong and if somebody does know of something. Right. So listeners, if you do know of a network or an organization, please let us know by email or on social media, any way that you can actually get hold of us, let us know. We'll check it out and we can even add it at a later stage to the show notes, Veronica, if we do get some feedback on that. That would be great. Awesome. So Veronica, before I ask you for your take-home message, I'm going to switch across to our spotlight feature. So are you ready to play a very short, quick, and I promise you it's an easy game? Well, the easy bugs me even more because if you find <laughs> it an easy game, then it's a huge trouble. <laughs> yes, let's go. <laughs> okay. So it's very straightforward. We always talk about this group of organisms called the Hasek group. So I just wanted to know if you could name the organisms in the Hasek group. So it is um the it's good grief i can um <laughs> they don't have to be in order <laughs> let's reduce the pressure <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, um, I'm, I'm thinking now Haemophilus. Yes. Um, but I've just spoken about Haemophilus. <laughs> Haemophilus. Yes, there we go. <laughs> um, then I know uh, Kingella and Achenella. There we go. Wait, Cardiobacterium, right? Cardiobacterium? Yep, yep, yep. That's the one. And then you've left the most difficult one for last, which is completely understandable. I, I have... Um, <laughs> It's 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 agri agri something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I need a, I need a lifeline. I need a lifeline. <laughs> well, you you started it. So Aggregative bacteria. Aggregative uh, exactly. Yeah. You see, you didn't need my help after all. You got them. <laughs> so let me just quickly. For I the definitely listening. needed your help for the last one. But <laughs> you did it without me anyway. <laughs> So let's just quickly put that in order for the listeners. So H is Haemophilus species. The A is Aggregatibacter, Actinomycetem comitens. It's a mouthful and a half. Then the C is Cardiobacterium hominis. The E is Iconella corridens. And the K is Kingella kingai. Well done, Veronica. You got that. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so you're off the hook now. You can relax, <laughs> and I'm going right. to <laughs> and I'm going to ask you for a quick key take home message that you would like our listeners to remember when it comes to aspelenia and microbiology. I think my first message goes out to my surgical colleagues. <laughs> okay, so I think if we could get involved way before the splenectomy and not the day before that would be really great because we really want to get these vaccinations on board and get some immunity um, if we can if this is an elective splenectomy Mm. so if the surgeons can just remember us id people when they want to take out a spleen obviously if it's an emergency we don't have that luxury Mm. and i think just don't underestimate infection in asplenic patients um they They've been some of the patients that have deteriorated the most rapidly, Mm. especially because they tend to be young, healthy-looking patients and things can really escalate quite fast. You want to act quickly. You want to consider these patients as a vulnerable population. Vaccinations and their timing are critical, so just always check that those are done. Sometimes we just assume that patients have been vaccinated. And don't forget the, the seasonal vaccinations are just as important and I think ensure that your patients are as empowered as possible to understand their risk and how to mitigate it because that makes your job a lot easier. Right. Thanks. So I think we got to spread the word amongst the surgeons and maybe we can get the surgeons to listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so anyone listening out there, if you've got a surgical colleague or a surgical friend, please share this episode with them. Veronica, it was wonderful to have you on the show and very, very insightful discussion, which I think was really not just our usual that is, um, you know, for medical students and clinicians and people working in the healthcare setting. But a lot of what you said, I think, is actually relevant for patients themselves. So this is this has been a great episode that I think, you know, is much more widely applicable. So thanks so much for all of your insights. It's only a pleasure, absolute privilege to speak on your show. Thanks, Veronica. So listeners, if you have any feedback, if you know about the support networks and organizations, please let us know. You can get us 
on email. You can try us on social media as well. Um, we'd be happy to get any information or feedback that you have for us. Don't forget about that five-star rating and always remember to share with your colleagues and friends. So until next time, that's it from me, Vinita, Ruan, and Nonkululeko, as well as Esther. This is the whole Microbe Mail team. We'll see you again soon with more Contagious Mail. <laughs>